Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored that one of my favorite think tank fellows, Nicholas Eberstadt from the American Enterprise Institute. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Great, Ron. I've never heard you get through the introduction so quickly. You must want to get talk to Nicholas about I, this. I can't <laughs> wait to talk to Nick. So I'll, uh, I'm not going to do his bio justice, but Nick Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. He researches and writes extensively on demographics and economic development generally, and more specifically on international security in the Korean Peninsula and Asia. He's written many books, including my favorite, The Tyranny of Numbers. And today we're going to talk to him about his latest book, Men Without Work, post-COVID edition that he published earlier this year. Nick Everstadt, welcome to The Soul of Enterprise. Hey, thank you both. Thank you, sir. This is a, an honor to be able to talk to you. Let's dive into your book, Men Without Work, the post-pandemic edition. You first published this book in 2016, and then I guess you updated it because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, you say American men are suffering depression era employment rates. Tell us about that and tell us what's changed because of COVID. Well, it's, it's an actually extraordinary situation that people don't pay attention to. It's, like this, it's this giant problem hiding in plain sight. We hear about the unemployment rates and uh, the information this year has been great on unemployment rates. They're almost at a half century low. But if you take a look at employment rates, at work rates, you find out that for this year, 2022, the work rate for prime age guys, 25 to 54 years of age, the backbone of the economy still, have been lower than they were in 1940, you know, at the tail end of the Great Depression, when we first start actually to get a good measure of this stuff. So we have a depression scale problem right in our midst for employment with men. It's not the old uh, depression era problem of massive bread lines, people out of work looking for jobs. Instead, we now have this situation of enormous numbers of men, 7 million and more, who have dropped out of the workforce, neither working nor looking for work. The problem has worsened since I wrote this uh, first edition of the book six years ago. I mean, we did have this little COVID thing that killed a million plus of us and uh, uh, also caused uh, all sorts of dislocations in our society, including dislocations due to unintended consequences of our policies to try to address the crisis. Now we have uh, an extraordinary new situation where we don't just have uh, men without work, we've got work without men or women. We've got 10 or 11 million unfilled jobs in the country, even as the 
number of people in the workforce is millions and millions lower than it would, would have been on pre-COVID trends. We now have new groups joining these men in sitting on the sidelines of the economy. And Nick, it's not a skill shortage, is it? Well, uh, the received wisdom has been for decades in the academy and in policy circles that it is a skills shortage, that this is due to economic and structural changes, decline in demand for less skilled labor, decline in manufacturing, globalization, China, all the rest. Now, there's some truth to that, but it doesn't get at the whole story. And I don't think it even really tells most of what's happened. I mean, if you just look today, um, go anywhere, like let's say in America, you'll see all of the signs for help wanted everywhere. And millions and millions of those, uh, those help wanted signs are for looking for job applicants whose only skill would be showing up for work regularly every day drug free so it's not it's not the old skills thing we were hearing about you know you point out from 1948 to 2015 that the work rate for this 20 plus male group declined from 86% to 68% that's massive i guess if people hearing this for the first time the first question is, how do these guys support themselves? Well, um, I tried to take a look at that as best one can as a, uh, you know, as a statistical nerd. You know, that's a kind of a term of art that we use. Uh, so, I mean, I, I didn't uh, I didn't talk to seven million guys. I just, you know, looked at the numbers I could find. And as from what I can show in this book, it the uh, the sustenance comes from uh, girlfriends and family, if you include Uncle Sam as a member of the family, because uh, probably men without, these men without work are making a little bit of money moonlighting, but they're not, you know, um, they're not making enormous amounts of money. It's more like kind of, uh, you know, play money, pin money. Uh, they're they're living with people who are helping to support them. They're also getting government assistance, uh, especially from disability programs. And there are a lot of different ones that don't talk to each other. Uh, before COVID, in the pre-COVID era, my book showed that more than half of the men without work were getting at least one benefit from one program, and about two-thirds were living in homes that were getting at least one of these benefits. The funny thing is, I mean, it's, it's not a life in the lap of luxury. There's a lot of misery in this. It's why we're seeing so many deaths of despair. I'm not trying to suggest uh, otherwise, please. But where, uh, where this grouping tends to be in the consumption and uh, ec the economic side of the spectrum isn't at the very bottom. The very uh, the very lowest quintile is usually like single mothers, and they've got a really, really hard time. Uh, these guys are usually above that in the kind of like the 20 to 40% group, let's say. And ironically, that's what used to be the group we'd think of as the working class, but this is the unworking class. It's amazing. I, one of the things I really liked about the book is you had a couple chapters from people who dissent or challenged some of your views. And one guy brought up the Vietnam draft. You talk about incarceration. You know, we've got 19 and a half million felons as of 2010, but 
you point out 17 million of those are not behind bars. How do these other things impact on this? Well, there's this is a huge historical change in the United States. It's a uh, it's an established fact that is now at least half a century old, this flight from work by prime age men. And so like any other big historical fact, there are all sorts of influences and contributions in here. History is kind of complex, but some of the things that changed between 65 and now, you can think of it this way. I mean, there's been a revolution in the family. The uh, the two-parent norm uh, with kids is no longer the norm for our country, uh, right? And back in the 60s, guys who neither had kids at home nor were married, they were already working less than their counterparts. So this is a big part of the phenomenon, the change in the family, the change in the social welfare state. Uh, In 65, the Great Society was just beginning. A welfare state was still kind of a twinkle in Lyndon Johnson's eye. We at the United States had come late to the social welfare party that had been started in Europe uh, earlier in the century. Europeans will say that our programs are stingy, and that may be, but it's still possible for a small uh, disincentive to do a lot of impact. Uh, We also had what you were just mentioning, um, Ron, which is the explosion of uh, criminality followed by an explosion of punishment. So that by the time I did the first edition of this book six years ago, um, it was clear that there were almost 20 20 million uh, felonized people in the United States, ex-cons or cons, uh, most of them in society, not behind bars, despite all that we know about mass incarceration in America. That problem has just continued to this day. Six years later, we probably have about 25 million uh, convicts or ex-cons in our society, over 20 million in, you know, not behind bars, way over 20 million, maybe one in seven adult guys. This is a, just an invisible problem hiding in plain sight. And obviously, this is deeply intertwined with what I'm describing. Then there's the immigration portion, right? Because in, in, around, uh, around the mid-60s, the uh, we changed our immigration rules. Uh, we had this self conception as a nation of immigrants, which we kind of are. But from the 20s until the mid 60s, we were pretty strict about immigration. We've had a lot of people come into the U.S. Uh, since the 60s. Uh, interestingly enough, men from other countries are way more likely to be in the labor force or to have jobs than their native-born counterparts, no matter what their ethnic background and, for the most part, no matter what their educational attainment. So all of this is part of the tapestry here. Right. Nick, economists always talk about incentives. And during COVID, you know, we were paying supplemental unemployment and people didn't want to go back to work. But unemployment ends Talk about this disability archipelago. I forgot who coined that term, but um, I think someone you're talking to. Okay, you coined that term. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, (laughs) It's a great term because people don't get off this, do they? This is uh, this is kind of a spooky thing. Um, People don't usually get off disability 
Uh, I mean, there are some, obviously. When you're dealing with, when you're talking of millions and millions of people, there are going to be a bunch of exceptions. But the odds are people tend to be long-termers. The awful kind of um, tableau that... image one has in one's mind is somebody who uh, gets out of the labor force at age 38, let's say, and stays on disability for a couple of decades and then becomes, uh, you know, becomes a pensioner at 62. We've got lots of different disability programs that don't talk to each other. That's part of our dysfunction here. Uh, These don't necessarily provide a princely life, but sometimes they do some very bad things. Uh, For way too long, uh, the eligibility for for being part of our National Public Health Service, uh, our Medicare, uh, allowed people who are on disability to go to a pain pill factory, talk to a pain pill doctor, and get pain pills paid for by the government. And unfortunately, inadvertently, this made for part of our opioid crisis. The death is the deaths of misery that we talk so much about. How many of those do we know how many of those are part of this 7 million that you've identified of NILFs? The um, the death certificates don't tell people's uh, employment status, but we can see that they are concentrated in the same groups that tend to be not in labor force. So we can draw inferences, but I can't give you precise statistics about it. I can tell you that the self-reported time use that the men not in labor force say that they're allocating from the time they wake up until the time they go to bed is pretty dispiriting and looks like kind of prep for too many deaths of despair. You know, you talk a little bit about what are these, what are these guys doing? Um, (laughs) 2,400 hours of self-reported screen hours. Yeah. Well, uh, no, almost no civil society worship, uh, or volunteering or charitable, surprisingly little help around the house or with other people, but a whole lot of watching something. And some of these, uh, some of these time use surveys ask about pain pills. Before the pandemic, almost half of these guys were labor force dropouts, said they were taking some type of pain medication every day. Wow. Well, there's so much more to talk to you about about this, but uh, unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com. And do check out Melio, our new sponsor, uh, an accounts payable solution that both you and your clients will love. Go to melio.com slash TSOE to get started for free. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit Melio.com slash accountants for more information. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. 
Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Our guest today on The Soul of Enterprise is Nick Everstadt. The book is Men Without Work, the post-pandemic edition. And Nick, I wanted to pick up on something that uh, Ron had put down, and that is the what are these guys doing? Um, and just to ask a, a question about, you said screen time. Is some of it video games? And it, are they, is they, do they and sometimes get a false sense of achievement? You know, I, I see my son play and it's like, next level, I'm now a level 17, whatever. <laughs> and is it somehow like feeding their, their subconscious that, hey, th this, I'm doing something even though I'm not doing anything? Oh, I think, uh, Ed, I think absolutely that's a big part of it. And it may be a bigger and bigger part of it. I mean, there are some researchers, uh, some economists who've taken a look at what they describe in this, um, you know, slightly neutral way as technological improvements in the video games. But it means that they're more compelling to people. They're living out what should be their real lives in this fantasy world. Uh, I mean, it can be a lot of fun, but if you do this as your kind of, uh, as your main occupation, it means that you're less and less likely to get back into the world where they've got employment and things like that. I, I heard recently, I think it was on Russ Roberts' podcast, where he said that, that data reported back on what's called the Nozick machine. I don't know if you're aware of this. Is like you, you put your, you put, you can, if you could transfer your brain into a place where, it would just give you a, a sense that you are living a fulfilled life. Would you do it? And a higher and higher percentage of people are saying that, yes, they would do that. 
which that's that's scary. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it it gets it gets to a broader, more metaphysical question about kind of meaning of life and happiness. Uh, I don't think what you're describing is entirely unrelated from the. Uh, emotional stress, the loneliness, the disconnection that we're seeing, especially among younger people, just the anxiety and the fear of the, let's see, the world outside the front door. These numbers that I'm looking at suggest that the men without work are getting out less and less. And then coming back to something, I'm going to read a question uh, or a quote from the book. Say, wittingly or not, Washington stumbled into a dress rehearsal for the universal basic income for a year and a half without paying much attention to the influence of behavior or expectations of workers. Uncle Sam effectively financed its own universal basic income scheme. This is, of course, the payments during COVID. What do you think your your work does, gives us any insight as to what, if, if any, would be effect if we went to a universal basic income? Well, of course, you can't totally generalize from what's happened in this little dress rehearsal or from what we see about the time use of the guys who've dropped out of the workforce altogether. But I think we'd have to say as a kind of a first approximation, if we're buying more men without work, we're going to see more of what I've been describing to you just now in terms of the time use that people uh, devote. Now, when I was trained as an economist, you know, back uh, shortly after the end of the Civil War, you know, we they had this uh, this thing we were taught, mistaught. Uh, they talked about uh, work or leisure. And what was meant by leisure was free time. And free time is a luxury, of course. People like to have free time. But that's quite misleading because leisure is a very particular use of free time. It's a use of free time in a way that helps restore you or that helps elevate you, uh, enhance your sensibilities. Free time can also be used in ways that kind of degrades you or even destroys you. And that's part of what we're seeing, I think, in um, in the patterns I've described. And I think that's something, apart from the financial costs and the economic consequences, I think that as a society, we'd have to be really mindful of that risk if we got towards thinking about UBI seriously. And one thing I want to, to check with you on is, you know, one of the things I think has changed over COVID is the number of people who are now working from home and they're not going back to to the office per se. Is is this going to mess with your your numbers of hours worked? Because it's becoming more and more difficult, I would say, to to measure the number of hours that people are truly, quote, working. What is and what is not working? You know, if I answer some email on a Saturday, I probably worked a couple of hours, but is that going to you know be counted, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think you probably are on to something here, but uh, we've had problems with our national income and GDP accounts as well for a while. I mean, when we were, you know, when we were turning out corn and tons of steel as the main, you know, forms of output, so to speak, that was one thing for measuring value. Now that almost everybody is working and living in the service sector, that's a lot harder to deal with. And just as you say, in principle, it's not a problem to measure hours worked. In practice, it may be more of a problem. 
Uh, and one of the things, uh, another another quote from the book, over the course of the 20th century, annual hours worked um, have fallen nearly by half. So is the household uh, household head uh, is now usually works about 1,700 hours per week in the marketplace. He spends more hours on leisure than at work. And this is the point you're just making. Have you uh, read at all or taught? We had Marion Tupi on two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Marion's wonderful. His notion of time prices yeah. and the, the, the impact on this. Is, is, yeah. Again, another thing that I think is going to change the way that we think about things from an economic perspective. Yeah, no, I am a huge fan of Marion Tupi and of the work that he's doing in superabundance and uh, the uh, the human progress uh, project and all of that. It's a kind of a continuation of work that my late great friend Julian Simon began back with his famous bet with uh, Paul Ehrlich and so forth. But yeah, so there, I, I have in a different life, I have written a lot about this stuff. <laughs> well, you talked to Ron about um, what do these guys do, but let's talk about who they are um, and just you know break it down by the different categories that you do in the book by race, by marital status, by and all th- those things. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, I think I already said there are over seven million of these men who are twenty-five to fifty-four, neither working nor looking for work. So, if and it's, the term is is nilf, nilf. just for those not milf, nilf. No, just to no, be clear, yeah. everyone. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not, and it's not, <laughs> not yeah. in labor force, yeah, yeah, not exactly. in labor force. There you go. Ah. Okay, <laughs> okay. So, uh, so, so dealing with seven million people, you're going to have some of everything, right? But mm. so, but but some some groups are overrepresented. So, from ethnic uh, standpoint, African Americans are way overrepresented, but. Latinos and Asian Americans are underrepresented, so that if you did the um, Anglo-non-Anglo comparison, it's about a wash. Uh, No surprise, but uh, less educated, more likely to be in this pool, high school dropout, very uh, much more likely to be in this pool, but about 40% of the guys have at least some uh, college and about a fifth have uh, you know a, a degree. Uh, if you look at family, this is a huge predictor. Uh, never married, way more likely to be in the pool. Uh, married, way less likely. Interestingly enough, uh, if you're unmarried but you've got kids at home, you're less likely to be in the pool. It's like the provider impulse. And then, of course, the census has got something that it calls nativity, and this is not a Christmas scene. This is their awkward category for. Uh, born in America or not. Um, The foreign born are way underrepresented. They're way more likely to be in the labor force. And that's true of every single ethnic group. So in a way, do you think that that one of the conclusions we can draw is that that um, marriage or at least being in a relationship where children are present is almost becoming more important to men than it is to women from a psychological standpoint? It's a fascinating thing, but you can see that if you are black and married as a guy, you're more likely to be in the labor force than if you're white and never married. So the race difference is overcompensated for by the, you know, the wedding ring factor. Interesting that that would have such a such an impact. Uh, well, we are up against our next break. Want to remind you, you can call t- contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the show notes are available at The Soul of Enterprise as well. 
with this uh, break is sponsored by our 90 Minds. Friends at 90 Minds need a mind, get one at 90minds.com. They are also the sponsor of our Patreon channel, available at patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to the show commercial-free, as well as the bonus episodes that Ron and I do each week. But right now, a word from those sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Nicholas Eberstadt. His latest book is Men Without Work, the post-COVID edition, published earlier this year. And Nick, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've seen the argument, I'm sure, about this. And and the retort is, so what? America's rich. Isn't the point of a life is not to have employment. It's to do what you want. So what's the problem? Well, I, I took a pretty deep dive into this thing. And as far as I can tell, there's absolutely nothing good that comes out of the flight from work by this critical group of prime age men. We get slower economic growth. We get bigger income and wealth gaps in our society. Uh, We probably get more dependence on social welfare, more long-term dependence on social welfare, probably get more public debt, more pressure on fragile families, less social mobility, less involvement in uh, civil society, uh, less trust in our institutions of basic life. I mean, there's just nothing good that comes out of it. And if someone were to convince you or convince me that, hey, you know, we're really rich and the labor force dropouts are all doing community service and boning up on their Schopenhauer or whatever, well, then we'd have a different sort of argument. But what we see now in modern America is an unprecedented spike in 
deaths from drug poisoning, deaths from, we've got a new trend in deaths of suicide again, deaths of cirrhosis. This is what the economists Ann Case and Angus Deaton are calling the deaths of despair. Um, I'm not so value neutral that I think that deaths of despair are cool. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And plus, you point out, and this was a great point, that if it was wealth that was causing this, then why is it that the OECD countries don't have this problem, except you point out Italy? <laughs> and, and Italy, of course, we, ha we uh, have an asterisk there because of the time-honored tradition of um, you know, gray markets, moonlighting, not reporting income that's taxable. Because if we had... If God were providing us our numbers for Italy, I don't think that they would look as dismal as ours do. Right. You know, I was reading uh, George Gilder's review of your the first edition mm -hmm. of this book in National Review from January sure. 23, 2017. What, he wasn't disagreeing with you. He, he just always talks about the whole sexual suicide thesis, mm -hmm. you know, of... Um, feminization of society mm -hmm. and taking away the male provider. What do you think of his thesis in general? I mean, his book, Sexual Suicide, Men and Marriage, for example, what do you think of him? Well, I mean, he, I, think, I think that he was on to things way before most of us were. I mean, I think he was kind of a visionary and, you know, with Visible Man way back in uh, the early 70s. Uh, and and well, there were other he was a pioneer in this. Lionel Tiger, with the you know, uh, was also a pioneer here. Uh, some days of the week, I'm Mr. Mary Eberstadt, and I would say that Mary Eberstadt has done some pretty great work on this more recently. Uh, but we've we've seen a revolution in the family now. Does this mean that men would have to be dispensable the way that they uh, you know, un? Uh, unnecessary in the workforce, the way we've shown that you know, 7 million uh, of them apparently are. Um, I don't know. I mean, because if you take a look at what's happened with women, it doesn't look so great either. Uh, since about the year 2000, the labor force participation rates for women have been going down. I don't want to like start flashing red lights at you, but let's say a yellow light. Um, there, is a, there is a group of women not in labor force not currently married, not with children at home. That is a group of millions and millions of women. And nowadays, their time use numbers look a little bit too much like the guys for comfort. And their self-reported use of painkillers every day, almost half. So uh, what, the, what I worry about actually, is that the women may be catching what the guys have and that this is a form of sexual equality that we really don't want. Right. You know, your uh, AEI colleague, Charles, Charles Murray, loves to say, you know, we libertarians don't do solutions. But in the book, you point, you, you think there's three areas that society should pay closer attention to. Can you sure. describe? Yeah, sure. That? Yeah. I mean, I didn't bring my magic wand to our <laughs> session today, so I'm not going to fix the family, and I'm not going to restore American uh, values and mores to circa 65 when all of this problem started to uh, emerge. But uh, 
within within the realm of perhaps feasible government action and we've got to always remember that there are unintended consequences to every government intervention the three things which we could look at i think uh are first of all you know bulking up on vocational skills and you can see that i'm a kind of a primitive even from using the word vocational because that's been banned as politically incorrect now by the uh by the uh, good thinkers uh, but it's a scandal but it's known by everybody that not everybody uh gets out of school with a skill and college isn't for everybody but everybody should get out of school with a skill and we're falling down badly on that so vocational or what's now called career and technical i think that's a really important gap um <clears throat> more or less reinventing our disability insurance system so that it does not uh, incentivize helplessness and long-term dependence. Um, I, this may sound odd to come out of my mouth, but I kind of like the Swedish idea of a work-first principle in social welfare. Uh, the unintended consequence, obviously, is it's probably going to be more expensive. Uh, there are probably other unintended consequences, but I suspect they'll be not as bad as the unintended consequences of the system that we've designed now. And the third thing is, when are we going to start paying attention to the 20 plus million invisible XCOMs in America. They're not all recidivists. I mean, there are a lot of people who might want to be back at work and might want to be back in society and part of families and things like that. We can't have um, evidence-based policies if we don't have the evidence. And But there's for some reason, Uncle Sam and his great wisdom has decided that these people should not only be sentenced to punishment, but they should also be punished by statistical invisibility kind of forever. I don't understand why that is the case. Are you optimistic about these three things? Like on that last one about the felons, you know, Ken Burns did that documentary. Uh, what was it, Ed College Behind Bars? Uh, it was a phenomenal, some college uh, enrolls mm -hmm. prisoners. Now they're in prison, they're behind bars. Yeah. But are, are you optimistic about, the, about these trends? Well, I think um, on that last one, I think we just have to find one righteous senator or a congressperson who uh, emails the Census Bureau and says, hey, I'm having hearings, uh, please link up your numbers on the jobs rate with the Bureau of Justice Statistics information on probation and parole and tell us what it looks like. It would take somebody not very much time at all. Uh, so that part I think is, is the easiest uh, in theory to do of any of the stuff I've said. Um, a lot of the a lot of the vocational is going to be a question of the glorious federal experimentation that we can naturally have in our political system and uh, we'd hope that when you see places that are doing something well that others might want to copy them the the disability part that's going to take some uh political consensus in washington and i I don't get the sense that that's really kind of like the flavor of the month at the moment, but sometimes good ideas win. And you mentioned my friend and colleague, Charles Murray, 
And Charles's book, Losing Ground in the 80s, is an absolutely perfect idea uh, example of when somebody comes up with a powerful idea that convinces people and changes politics in a very positive way. Well, that's what you guys do at AEI, right? You keep these good ideas around. So when we try, when society's ready. Well, I mean, um, don't blame us for what you see now. We haven't done everything that's there now. Right? <laughs> we, we don't do as good an idea, as good a job as you might be suggesting. <laughs> We're still working on. True. Well, Nick, uh, I want to pivot to your my favorite book, one of my favorite books. You you so helped me think through. We talk a lot on the show about the moral hazards of measurement how numbers can give us a false sense of precision and certainty and knowledge. And, you know, some of that I learned from your book, The Tyranny of Numbers, oh, yeah. which was published in 1995. You, you taught me the term uh, quantifrenia yes. and idolatry of numbers. Um, what I loved about this, you, you open the story or, or somewhere in the book, you talk about the, in 1985, the CIA took uh, one of the biggest statistical studies ever and determined that East Germany's output was greater than West Germany. But any taxi cab driver going through Checkpoint right. Charlie could tell you East Germany was inferior to West Germany. Talk about that. You called it trained incapacity. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, during the Cold War, uh, our government sponsored the biggest and most expensive social science project in history which was the effort to describe the Soviet economy and the other economies of the Soviet bloc. And uh, I think at the end of the day, to judge by the results, we have to say that it was a monumental failure. And there were a lot of, the, the, the Soviet Union did not collapse because of the CIA's brilliant descriptions of the economy. Let's just put it that way. Uh, right before the end of the Soviet era, uh, these assessments were saying it's chugging along at 2% growth. It's got, uh, you know, maybe 11% of uh military burden. It, the economy is about 60% as big as ours. I mean, all of those are wrong. And not only were they wrong, but they were misleading to our policymakers because the economy was way smaller. It was way more militarized. And the fact that it was way more militarized also told us something about the intentions of the dictators that were being muffled by these bad economic studies. Same deal with the East German, West German comparison. I mean, that was so bad that it does that it failed my very first statistical test, which I call the laugh out loud test. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you also taught me, and, and this got me in more trouble, Nick, because I used to, I, I still teach, but I teach uh, uh, alternatives to the federal income tax course. And one of the things I pointed out was that you can't just look at income to determine standard of living. You have to look at consumption. And you say in this book, and I don't know if this is still true, but measuring poverty by consumption, the rate would be more like two or three percent. Well, that, um, yeah. no, sure. I mean, we're looking at the wrong end of the telescope. 
you know, you uh, you want to know about poverty. You want to know what people's purchasing power is. You want to know what their purchasing power is. Look at what they're spending. That's consumption. One of my friends and colleagues at American Enterprise Institute, who's also at Chicago University of Chicago, uh, Bruce Meyer, has been doing very comprehensive work, very detailed, careful work on looking at consumption patterns and how they what they would mean if we were measuring poverty rates against them. You know, like you said, two, three percent, not I mean, it's it's basically, um, you know, that the poverty problem of the 1960s has been solved. Right. The misery you, problem has not. We've only got about a minute. This may be unfair, but can you just quickly tell the, the story of Molly Orshansky, who came oh, up with the measurement? Oh yeah. Sure. Uh, well, Molly Orshansky was, a, was an economist at the, the uh, Social Security Administration. She was more or less given the assignment to come up with the with a poverty rate for the war on poverty. We didn't have a lot of figures on stuff, so she basically pulled a glorified all-nighter and saw what was in the cupboards, you know, what was in the statistical cupboards, and she said, okay, well, we can cobble these different things together into this kind of like Rube Goldberg version of a kind of like an estimate. Uh, and that was fine for an all-nighter, but you don't want to like set this in stone and make this, you know, kind of like the tablets from Sinai that you're going to be like measuring uh, poverty against for the next 60 years. Right. She took she basically took the uh, what was it? The USDA's economy food plan yeah. and multiplied it by three. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, so so she she took what was supposed to be a rather modest food budget, tried to figure out, well, how much you know, what proportion of your income is food? OK, third. OK, well, back then it was a third. It's a lot less now. Multiply it by three and, you know, and see what happens. Uh, I mean, it was uh, what would you say? Good enough for government work. Didn't she later call it quasi-scientific? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, what would I have done in the in her situation? Well, I mean, if if resigning was not an option, maybe I'd have tried to do it the way that she did. But I would probably have recommended that we get better numbers for later on and try it kind of different. Well, Nick, this has been so great. What an honor to have you on. Thank you so much. Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home. It's a blast for me. Uh, this has been great. Um, if you'd like to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And Ed mentioned our Patreon channel that's sponsored by 90 Minds. And at a certain tier on that Patreon channel, you can get a shout out like Mark Gandy did. He's at cfobookshelf.com, his podcast, which I highly recommend. And now a word from our sponsors and Ed's employer. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash times up. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Once again, the book is Men Without Work, Post-Pandemic Edition. The author is Nicholas Eberstadt, and he's with us here on The Soul of Enterprise today. And uh, two more quick questions on the the book, Nick. Uh, Would... Would getting rid or modifying the infamous checkbox about uh, have you been convicted of a felon uh, be something that might be helpful? Maybe, say, uh, give a statute of limitations uh, within the last 10 years or nonviolent, something like that. Would that possibly make a difference? Well, the ban the box initiatives sound like they make sense, right? But as we've been discussing, what's the unintended consequence? Um There have been a couple of experiments with that. And the unintended consequence in the real world seems to be that then uh, all employers think that every person who seems to be coming from a disadvantaged background is a criminal. And so it actually reduces, or it seems to reduce, uh, you know, the, uh, the employment. So it has exactly the opposite intention of its intention. Um, I mean, there are, uh, I mean, I think there are good arguments for, uh, you know, after X number of years of kind of expunging people's records. I mean, there is this kind of uh, concept of paying your debt to society. Um, And I think that that's, I mean, there's, I think, compelling arguments there. Uh, What it is a harder sell now that crime rates are going up again to uh, try to bring people who want to reform in from the cold than it was when we were living in that generation when crime uh, levels were just heading pretty straight down. Yeah. yeah. And that's where, you know, maybe a 10 year thing might, might, but you're right. It mm-hmm. still could have some unintended consequences. What about what uh, eliminating a lot of the licensure requirements just overall, not necessarily for felons, but just get lo- significantly getting rid of licensure for so many things. Oh, I mean, that, that just, that looks to me like low hanging fruit. I mean, that looks to me like, uh, like pretty obvious and certainly with, uh, uh, certainly with, uh, ex cons, it's gotta be keeping a lot of people out of, uh, opportunity that, that they could actually, uh, obtain if there weren't barriers against this. We have to think about the extent to which licensing actually really is, uh, you know, 
following skills for public safety reasons, and what extent licensing is like collusion and cartel. And there's an awful lot of collusion and cartel in licensing, and that's why it seems to be so popular. It seems yeah. to be increasing. Bootleggers and Baptists, right? <laughs> Well, um, Ron and I, when we booked you, felt it would be almost uh, negligent on our part if we didn't talk a little bit with you about North Korea, being uh. as you are one of the foremost experts on North Korea. And uh, recent, we had an even more reason to talk about it because it was either earlier this week or late last week. Another missile across the bow over over Japan. Yep. Yep. Um, what's the what's going on? Well, I can't tell you what's going on because I guess I must have lost Kim Jong-un's uh, email address and uh, he, didn't, he doesn't talk to me anymore, you know. But So I, I can only guess and, uh, you know, try try not to be wrong. Yeah, but you uh, can speculate a lot better than most of us. So, yeah. Well, so, I mean, the way it looks to me, and this is my interpretation, you know, I'm not saying that this is right. Mm-hmm. Um, the the North Korean government uh, is absolutely unconditional about wanting to absorb all of the Korean peninsula to be, so to speak, the one Kim to rule them all, you know, like that. And um, th- this has been true. This was true of him. It's true of his pop. It was true of his grandpa. And at this point, given the failure of their system, really their only option for continuing the quest is the military one, is uh, a nuclear arsenal to make Uncle Sam blink and maybe you know, get out of the Korean peninsula in some showdown, and a different sort of nuclear arsenal to be able to at least threaten to fight and win a war in the peninsula. So that's why they're developing this whole menu of different range uh, rockets and also trying to fix the physics package so that they can deliver nuclear weapons more or less to our doorstep here in Washington, D.C., or to remind Japan that there's a mail service from Pyongyang that's flying over the main island there, or to uh, or to do a battlefield nuclear uh, war, you know, right next to Seoul. They don't think, they do not think that the South Koreans have the guts to fight them. They may find out someday that they're very wrong, but they think that they they think that they can do this, and that's the amazing thing. There was there was a time uh, twenty years ago. I think it was a college professor of mine or something said that you know p- part of the reason why we're there in the DMZ is to keep the South from going north. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that, that is probably less so now yeah. than it was it was earlier, uh, but. It, it's, it seems preposterous to think that the minnow can eat the shark, you know, and the, the north can eat the south, uh, because everything seems to be the south's advantage on, you know, on the blackboard. But the the North Korean regime uh, has just got kind of like one intention besides staying in power, and that is the racial rule of the whole peninsula. Well, I'm going to try to connect the the Men Without Work book and and Korea, and and let me see if I can do this justice. But if we could imagine a world where somehow the the, the Kims lost power, um, you say in Men Men Without Work, you say we we have a, a structural problem. It's going to take decades to get out of. It took us decades to get into. How long would it take to for for North Korea to get reinvigorated in some way after after? 70 years, I guess, or 60 years of of this horrid situation that they're in. 
Well, remember, we had a reunification in the United States, too, after the Civil War. How long did it take the South to recover and get up to the Northern standards? Probably three generations, maybe. I mean, we did a lot of things, you know, we made a lot of mistakes, but I mean, I don't know that the that a Korean unification would work on a, you know, perfect, uh, you know, schedule either. Be, be very difficult, maybe more akin to East Germany, West Germany, too. I think a lot. I think a lot harder than that because I mean, West Germany had all of the rule of law stuff, you know, in place for you know really solidly, uh, and in the north, people haven't even been able to listen to outside broadcasts the way that people in East Germany were. There's nobody with living memory of what it was like to live in a free society in North Korea, unlike East Germany. Tragic. Well, Nicholas Everson, thanks so much for being a guest today on the Soul of Enterprise. We had such a wonderful time talking to well, you. It's a blast we'll... for me. Thank you. Uh, all right. <laughs> outstanding. Well, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we're going to talk to John Farrell. He's the author of The Clock and the Camshaft. All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours then. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have complete show notes on our conversation today with Nick and where you can find his work and his book. Also, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network 